Hey, I'm Andy. If you don't know me, it's probably because I'm not famous. But I did start a men's grooming company called Harry's. The idea for Harry's came out of a frustrating experience I had buying razor blades. Most brands were overpriced, overdesigned, and out of touch. At Harry's, our approach is simple. Here's our secret. We make sharp, durable blades and sell them at honest prices for as low as $2 each. We care about quality so much that we do some crazy things, like buy a world-class German blade factory. Obsessing over every detail means we're confident in offering a 100% quality guarantee. Millions of guys have already made the switch to Harry's, so thank you if you're one of them. And if you're not, we hope you give us a try with this special offer. Get a Harry starter set with a five-blade razor, weighted handle, shave gel, and a travel cover. All for just three bucks, plus free shipping. Just go to harrys.com and enter 5000 at checkout. That's harrys.com, code 5000. Enjoy! Live from the 2017 DBA International Conference at the Aria Resort Hotel and Casino in Las Vegas, it's time now for a special episode of the Capital Club Radio Show, broadcasting on the Pro Business Channel Networks. This show made possible in part by Flock Specialty Finance. And now, here's your host, Chairman and CEO of Flock Specialty Finance, Michael Flock. Thank you, and good afternoon, live from Las Vegas here at the Aria Hotel. We're excited to have as our guest today, Lou De Palma. Lou is managing partner of Garnett Capital Advisors, the leading broker of loan portfolios of all types uh, in our industry. And last year, Garnett did two billion of performing portfolios, and they also brokered five billion of distressed portfolios. So we are delighted to have Lou, you know, a leader in this space here with us today. He got started in this industry in 1987 and helped build Cohane Rafferty's loan portfolio sales and advisory business. He was there for 15 years until it was acquired by Lehman Brothers. Following that, he became the founding member of the loan portfolio division of Keith Broyette and Woods in their loan sales group. Following that, he started Garnett Capital with Robin Ishmael and Sean McVitie in 2004. He's now a frequent water and speaker in the industry. In fact, tomorrow he'll be talking to everyone about the future and trends of debt buying in 2017 and beyond. So, Lou, tell me, how did you get into this space? I mean, as a kid, you didn't dream of brokering loan portfolios, did you? Yeah, nobody grows up wanting to be a loan broker. And, you know, if I had something to say to mothers and children, please don't have your kids grow up to be loan sale advisors. Uh, no, I think that what drew me to the business was I was in healthcare early on, right after college, and then I got into financial services at Cohane Rafferty. They owned a mortgage company, and Cohane and Rafferty were part of the Liars Poker Group. So they worked directly for Louis Ranieri. Wow! And then they, you know, they were, and then my next boss at Keith Briette and Woods after Cohen Rafferty or a couple of years later was Craig Coates. He was the one who actually played the liar's poker for a million dollars, no tears. Okay. So I worked directly for that gentleman. And, you know, so they had the heyday of mortgage banking, mortgage banking M&A, where the mortgage is the beginning of mortgage securitization. And I was drawn to it because I like puzzles. Puzzles. Okay. Figuring out a loan portfolio, especially on the distressed side, uh -huh. is like figuring out a puzzle. Okay. 
So it's the intellectual challenge of it? And every portfolio is different. Mm -hmm. And I think if you ask my partners, Sean and Robin, I think it's the same thing. It's... We like figuring out different things and working on different things and different challenges from time to time. So it's almost like a sport, maybe, is it? Yeah, a sport where the season never ends. Uh huh. <laughs> Unlike the Super Bowl where you lift the trophy. Uh huh. There's always, you know, another game coming up and another, you know, meeting, another portfolio to value. So it's a, it's a little more of a grind. There's no off season in loan sales. Right, right. It never stops. It never stops. But that's probably the fun of it for you, right? And there's no glory or confetti like, uh-huh. you know, Tom Brady gets. Right. Is there sudden death in uh, loan sales? It's more like <laughs> slow, excruciating death. <laughs> oh, okay. Torture. Yes. Torture. Um, you mentioned you know, the gentleman from Liars Poker. I mean, what were some of the lessons there? I mean, is, is that was he a mentor? Was he a uh, someone you looked up to? So Craig Coates, definitely. For, for Larry, uh, Larry Rafferty and Timmy Cohane and Louis Ranieri, that kind of crowd, it was more about the fun. I mean, they really... They really worked hard, but at the end of the day, they played hard. Uh-huh. So whether it was going out to a bar or going out on the golf course on the weekends or leaving work at 2 o'clock to just mm-hmm. do something crazy, mm-hmm. and they did lots of crazy things. Craig Coates had mellowed out. He was an older gentleman by the time he was my boss. Very bright. Very, he had a good view on, like, worldwide discount rates. Mm-hmm. And one of the brightest guys I've ever worked for. Mm-hmm. You know, but when the average person hears liars poker, it doesn't necessarily have a positive connotation. So, I mean, what were some of the positive lessons that you got from that experience? Well, that's right. So that was, um, gosh, who was the author there? Michael, whatever. He he spun it to not be positive, but when you think about the liquidity that securitization added to the mortgage industry mm-hmm. at the base of it it really did it really delevered the banks mm-hmm. and allowed you know many more people to buy houses so you know those guys the early deals in mortgage banking those deals all performed you know, soup to nuts, terrifically. They were all out of it by the time the subprime. So it did have a positive impact uh, economically, right? You're saying because it brought liquidity to the mortgage markets. Right. It brought liquidity and we learned how to uh, deconstruct cash flows. Okay. And then predict cash flows into the future. And you said, I think, or you implied that that served to help deleverage the banks in the mortgages? So the thrifts, so the you know, I'm old enough to have been through several banking crises. Okay. So the one in the you know the the 80s was where banks interest rates went up, so banks had three, four, five percent mortgages on their books, but the rate they had to pay on their deposits was five, six, seven, ten percent. Okay. So they were all upside down. Okay. And they needed to delever to get those uh, mm-hmm. low rate assets off their books, and mm-hmm. securitization was. One of the alternatives, or going out of business. Right. Wow. Many of them did back in the RTC days. Right. Right. So you use the word crises. Uh, w- help us uh, understand what you learned then from some of these crises uh, or adversity. I mean, you were talking kind of at a macro level, adversity for the market. But what about Lou De Palma? Did you have some sleepless nights when you were young and learning all this stuff from the the gang at Liars Poker? So crises. 
in, I think it's Chinese, the definition is the uh, combination of danger and opportunity. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, we had an intern from China who explained that to me. And, and, and really, when you think about it, that's what happened. I, I mean, there were problems, systemic problems in the banking industry, and fortunes were made by having capital to pick up assets at that time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, fortunes were lost by people who were on the wrong side of the interest rate um, equation. So I guess, could we say that some of the personal traits that you learned from that early experience was, was it courage? Was it guts? Was it uh, being opportunistic? So all those words, courage, guts, opportunistic, are traits I don't have. <laughs> so, and, and so that's why I'm an intermediary. That was my next question. You read my mind. So you, the, you don't have the guts to be a debt buyer? The people... I, I, the people who take money, OPM, other people's money, invest it, and, you know, in order to make money, I have a lot of respect for them. Okay. And I've seen many of them get wealthy. We just realize that's not us, mm-hmm. right? So the clients I talk to and the people that appreciate me and the decades-long relationship I've had is, they say, we like you because you take our assets, you deconstruct them. And then it's very transparent as to who you show it to, the price, and how deals get done, rather than you buying it and then making you know ten million dollars and nobody knows what happens. So, could we say that Lou De Palma is a better risk manager than a risk taker? Risk avoider. A risk avoider. This is the ultimate irony because you're helping other people take giant risks, but you personally are a risk avoider. Right. If you looked at my personal investment portfolio in treasuries, you'd say this guy is like totally risk adverse. Really? So do you even have a mortgage on your house? A very small mortgage. I live in my starter home. You live in your starter home? Yes. Well, that's like Warren Buffett, though, right? Warren, Buff- Warren Buffett's living in yeah, his starter home. Yeah, my house is probably a little smaller than Warren Buffett. <laughs> <laughs> but wow. Warren Buffett okay. is an investor, right? Uh, that's it, right. What, what you have He's to, not a broker. Right. What you really have to admire about him is his view of value. Mm-hmm. And that's what I, I, I admire about. But uh, I actually have other people managing my money for investment purposes. Uh-huh. And part of that is when you're on Wall Street, you can't buy and sell stocks, especially in financials, which is what I know. Right. So, you know, right. we I had money managers in place and, and I just you don't want to be upside down with the SEC with having a trade. Right. With right. a client. So if you're a risk avoider, I mean, was there ever a time that you went in a contrary direction to the market? We talk at, at our company about taking the roads less traveled because sometimes there's less competition in going on a road less traveled. Did you ever do that in your career or at Garnett recently? Our entire career is built on, you know, being where Goldman Sachs doesn't play. Okay. Okay. Right? Okay. Because they're going to beat you. Right. So either, either in a product that they're not in or a size that they're not in, and also being the weather vane of the industry, so being in products that are illiquid, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. where nobody knows if the price is $0.25 cents on the dollar or $0.75 cents on mm-hmm, the dollar. Mm-hmm. So a well-run process mm-hmm. where you get 72 but everybody's on the same page, mm-hmm. 
gives everybody comfort, and I think adds value. Wow. So you just summarized kind of what the vision is, I guess, for Garnett Capital. Is that right? You know, did we have a vision? You know, we had five or six people, and, you know, we we were sponsored. Uh, we were backed by Bear Stearns, so we set up in the Bear Stearns building. Right. And we just said we're going to broker loans. Mm-hmm. It's morphed into that. Mm-hmm. You know, we're 25 people now. Mm-hmm. So, you know, my risk is next month's payroll. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so... You, so you do take some risk. Well... Minimal. I call that responsibility. Okay. Right? Okay. Because we had a lot of young people who now have got married, have kids, put them through school, put yep. them into college. Yep. That's a big responsibility. Mm-hmm. Right? Because... We control the business, but they depend on the business being there Mm -hmm. to pay their bills. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, I take that very seriously. Hmm. So even though you're a risk avoider and you're a broker, not a risk taker, you're a risk manager or a risk avoider, not a risk taker, are there... Do you ever have a sleepless night at Garnett, or is everything just so wonderful and the business just flowing in, the $2 billion last year performing, the $5 billion of distressed? Uh, Does anything keep you up at night, or... Did you notice the gray hair? <laughs> so is it the performance of the deals that you broker? Is that Does that weigh on your mind? Our deals are not easy, okay. right? So every deal has issues. So um, I wouldn't say, I, I think we sleep well at night because, mm-hmm. our, you know, we, we try to do the right thing every day, mm-hmm. but. We do work on the weekends and email ourselves, and I'll get emails at ten, eleven, or somebody will wake up in the middle of the night and say, right. I was just thinking about this, about a deal. We should do this tomorrow. Wow. So your team was pretty tight. Yeah. 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 We're all, we're, I think the word is deal junkies. Okay. The puzzle. The puzzle. Solving the puzzle. Right. It's almost, it sounds like it's almost like a hobby to you, and you can't stop it. Almost. Uh, it's fun. Uh-huh. So. So Sean and Rob and I, three tremendously different personalities, and I, I know you know. I haven't met Rob, but I've met Sean. Nobody meets Robin. Right. So, um, you know, Robin will meet one client a year. Okay. But she's the most efficient deal person on the street. Okay. And, you know, lots of people have tried to. Uh-huh. Um, efficient. Tried she- to steal her. Because, you know, once she closes a deal or meets mm-hmm. clients, mm-hmm. she'll meet clients working on a deal. But dispassionate, and she's the buzzsaw of working through deals. So she sounds almost mercenary. Dispassionate. She's the Joe <laughs> Friday of working. You know, just the facts, man. So, okay, okay. You, you know, we said puzzles. The other thing, it's it's kind of like mining. You know, we're in the quarry, like Fred Flintstone. Right, right. She goes, selling a loan portfolio is like breaking big rocks into little rocks. Okay. Right. Shoveling the little rocks into uh, into the lodestar, getting it down into the refinery, and then figuring out where the gold is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know. So it's it's uh, item processing and doing it right. 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 So what are your plans this year for Garnett? I mean, do you have any other new asset classes you're thinking about? New markets you're going to enter? Other ways to uh, avoid Goldman Sachs uh, in niche That's- segments they haven't contemplated? It's interesting, you know, how do you plan a spot market business, right? So our business has always been spot market. So we start the year at zero, and we only make in a year 
what we close in that year. That being said, in 12 years, our income is very, it's on a very consistent trajectory. Mm -hmm. And we do commercial, consumer, residential, performing, and non-performing. And we have a cookie every year of each product. You know, there's sort of like eight slices of the cookie. And those slices spin Mm -hmm. around and look different every year, and the total remains the same. Mm -hmm. And, you know, everybody gets paid at the end of the year, and they come to work happy in January. The total remains the same. Not, well, the, not the total volume. That changes, doesn't the it? The total volume changes dramatically, right. kind of the income. Right, right, right. right. So gotcha. the worst times were 2008, 2009, mm-hmm. 2007, and 2008, where the financial market seized up. There mm-hmm. were no deals. Nobody did deals. Right. That's when Lehman went down. That's when Bear Stearns went down. Right. Um, but we signed up for government work. Yeah. And, um, you know, we now work for the FDIC, the S- the SBA and the NCUA, and so we've done well over a hundred assignments for the FDIC. Wow! Not well paying, but you mm-hmm. know, it, mm-hmm. we could make payroll. Right, and it gets your brand out there. It gets our brand out there. Um, speaking of the government, so what impact uh, has regulation had on Garnett Capital in the past, and how do you see you know government regulation changing in the future? You know, the last 10 years have been very interesting, and I used to say a lot of the regulation, or I used to say a lot of the confirmation people would have is Lou. Mm -hmm. Lou tells you this is the right way to do it, Mm -hmm. and I know what I'm doing, so that's all you need to know. That's morphed into we spend about a million dollars a year on data security for a small firm. That's a big number, Mm -hmm. and... Now we have written policies and procedures and scorecards for buyers. Mm -hmm. And so I think regulations has become a barrier to entry to people Mm -hmm. doing my business. So that's good for me, right? So we've raised prices kind of across the board Mm -hmm. because, you know, our our, uh, cost of doing business has gone up. And the other regulations on banking, it's sort of inhibited them from wanting to do things for fear of what the regulators would say. That squashed our business for several years. I mean, we still had plenty to do, mm-hmm. but we noticed a loosening in last fall mm-hmm. into the winter mm-hmm. and continuing on this spring where people now either feel they've got a good handle on the regulations. We know now what the CFPB wants. Mm-hmm. And as long as we know what they want, we could do it that way. Mm-hmm. Or what the OCC wants. The OCC now has three or four financial institution letters out there saying this is how you handle a loan sale. Mm-hmm. So if we have the cookbook, we could follow it. Mm-hmm. Right. So you're saying regulations have actually helped Garnett in yeah, one respect. they have helped us. But hasn't it affected also, at least in the charged-off debt, the non-performing markets, hasn't it shrunk the volume that you can broker? Shrunk the volume dramatically and increased our market share dramatically. Okay, but in shrinking the volume, doesn't that shrink your income? Well, so it's a 50 or $60 billion market mm-hmm. that went, it was, let's say it was at the peak, it was $60, $70 billion and it went down to $40 billion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're doing 5 or $10 billion a year, so, mm-hmm. you know, there's enough for us to work on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Right. So, so going forward, uh, I know... You know, you're uh, you're going to be talking tomorrow to the DBA Association about your view of the future, the trends, and so forth for debt buying, mostly the charged off stuff. Can you share with our listeners a preview of that? Sure. So 
we think that the credit card business, which is the major supplier to this industry, will loosen up. So that volume will increase. That will help only the biggest of buyers. Mm-hmm. Um, my clients tend to be the second and, you know, the, the money center, not the money center, the regional banks and mm-hmm. the, um, mm-hmm. kind of community banks. Mm-hmm. They are now increasingly entering the market. So sell debt? To sell debt. Even so, the community banks? Yes. Well, if, if by a community bank, you know, we can only deal with banks that are one, two, three billion in assets and up, right? So there's 3,000 banks mm-hmm. that are under 200 million in assets. It's mm-hmm. very difficult for us. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm talking about, Kind mm-hmm. of regional banks mm-hmm. that have an auto portfolio, a consumer portfolio, a commercial portfolio. Right, right, right. So, um, so we think the supply from the banks will be bigger. Subprime auto will be bigger, and we are seeing municipalities. Mm-hmm. So, parking tickets, speeding tickets. Mm-hmm. You know, every town now has cameras. Right. Um, that take your picture when you do something wrong. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. so I'm not saying I got one of those, but I was driving I my wife's car. I did in Iowa. Yeah. Yeah. So I figured. Going 90 miles an hour in a cornfield. Yeah, right? Yep. <laughs> my opinion there is if I'm driving my wife's car, it's her ticket. <laughs> okay. Um, she she sort of disagreed with that. Uh-huh. Haven't, in, uh, in your work at Garnett, haven't the resale... The rules of resale definition hasn't that driven down your volumes? And I'm bringing this up because many of the members of DBA are middle market debt buyers, and I know a lot of them saw their Correct. volume shrink because of the resale rules. So, not shrunk, almost decimated. Yeah, I was being right? polite. Yeah, yeah. So we were really not in the resale market unless it was a big deal, kind mm-hmm. of a billion dollars or five hundred million and up, and where we had to go to Bank of America and all the big sellers right. and get pre-approval to sell. Right. And those were no issues because somebody who could write that check to buy that portfolio mm-hmm. was big and conforming and was already buying from those people. Mm-hmm. The middle market buyer on the retrade, that's over. Mm-hmm. Right? You don't see that coming back at all? with the what, Not in the credit card. What Trump market. is talking about maybe with the loosening up of... No. No? No, because those, those issues are mm-hmm. consent orders from OCC, mm-hmm. and he, he's never going to drill down that far. Okay. Right? To okay. change that kind of thing. And quite frankly, it's a better fo- performing industry right now. Mm-hmm. That does not mean that there's not product for a middle market buyer. We are selling portfolios from regional banks that are several hundred thousand dollars of purchase price. Okay. To a couple of million dollars. Right. And and the big buyers wouldn't care. PRA, Encore, they're not going to go after that. So your advice to middle market buyers is go after regional banks or community banks. Right. Okay. And does Garnett actually help these institutions put in place a sales process? Do you actually advise them on that? Yeah, you you have to. Compliance. So we, so a community bank can't follow all the financial institution letters and consent orders. Mm -hmm. So we have written policies and procedures Mm -hmm. for how to do it. Mm -hmm. When a bank comes to us, now we're not compliance advisors. Right. You know, we say this is what we do. And so we document everything we do. They approve everything. At the end of the trade, they Mm -hmm. get a big book Mm -hmm. that documents 
every anywhere from 500 to 2,000 pages mm-hmm. that documents everything that was done, mm-hmm. how you got to the correct balance, how you got to the correct documentation, and how you got to the correct purchase price, mm-hmm. and how you vetted out the buyer to assure that they were appropriate for this portfolio. Mm-hmm. So would this be a value-add service that Garnett Capital provides to originators? I, I don't think you could do it. It's value-add in that you can't do a loan sale. If you Without don't do it. that, yeah. you're you're not doing the right thing. Okay. So that's not necessarily then a differentiator for Garnet Capital versus your competition, is it? It It is. Well, the issue is not everybody can do that. I think there's maybe, if there's one or two firms that, that have the sort of mm-hmm. the data security that we have, I don't think they could spend a million dollars a year. Okay. On data security. They don't have an office where you So that's a differentiator, the data security of Garnett. Yeah. Because there are a couple other firms we all know out there. I was just curious what your strategy is to differentiate Garnett. And, and you know, I like all those firms, and we've grown up in the industry together. Mm-hmm. And, you know, sometimes we pitch against them. Sometimes they get the business, and sometimes I do. Right, right. But if it's... If they need to go through a process with data security right. and, you know, um, and written policies and procedures and banking, right. it's, it's, that's kind of a grind. Right, right. So, Lou, let's talk about you personally again. How, what, what, what are you reading these days? Well, what's on your, what book's on your nightstand at home? Boy, that's, uh, you know, I read... I don't read as much as I used to. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I read the Times, the Journal, American Banker every day. Okay. So th- that's how I start my day. Right. Just to see what's going on in the world. And generally, we, you know, we take a summer vacation kind of to mm-hmm. the arts retreat. Mm-hmm. And I read whatever on their mm-hmm. list because right. we have book discussions. And right. it was the um, the book about the Lusitania last year. Okay. And, um, the Lusitania. Yeah. Okay. So it's I didn't read a lot it. of historical, uh-huh. you know, uh, nonfiction. Okay. And then my general sort of day to day is kind of sales. Right. Because that's my part of the partnership and business development. Business yeah. development, sales. You know, what we do getting out there every day and every week and getting on planes is hard. Uh huh. So trying to keep yourself motivated. Right. And where did you learn sales? Was that at, you know, KBW or I had some Xerox training early on. <laughs> Xerox, okay. It was a uh, oh, that's a that's a name for the past. Yeah, but um, mostly book and oh, okay. and seminars. I went to on my own. Okay, you know, try to figure it out. And I have a psychology background, so okay, that well that helps. helps. Yep. So yeah, you say. You know, what did you do before you got into financial services? And I'm like, well, I worked in a psychiatric hospital. <laughs> oh, really? And everybody says, well, you know, that's sort of that's sort that of good. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So my, when my wife says, I met my husband in a psychiatric hospital, then our friends say, what okay. side of the glass was he on? Yeah, right, right. Um, in the book on Lusitania, was there a puzzle there? You say you like solving puzzles. Was there a mystery with what sunk the Lusitania? I don't recall. Well, no, because it's you know it's a known fact. It was a German U-boat. Right. But the the tension okay. of 
you know, what the U-boat went through, uh-huh. and, you know, how many days and weeks it was out with limited oxygen and limited right. munitions right. and the risks that the lucid, you know, the effect of small decisions today right. on lives tomorrow. Okay. Yeah, that was sort of, um, okay. and also the intertwining of stories. Okay. So when we're selling a portfolio, it's kind of stories. Uh-huh. There were the, the um, gosh, I can't remember who did it, but we've read a couple of books of his. And, you know, he takes nonfiction and he takes the personal stories of the people involved. And, you know, one person started a, a you know, Avon Old Farms uh, prep school in in uh, in Connecticut, and there were some, you know, there was the the Vanderbilts, and there were some other right. wealthy people on that boat, and then some sort of, you know, servants and right. some sort of, you know, uh, dock workers, and you know, taking the different stories. So the intertwining of the stories was a story in and of itself, right? Right, right. and the way he told a story was was you know, it's just amazing. What were the kind of the underlying kind of words of wisdom from those stories that you could share with us? You know, the words of wisdom come from sort of the, you know, I think it's decision making. Uh-huh. And, you know, the decisions that the captain of the Lusitania made and the captain of the U-boat. Okay. That really, you know, what you do in your own life has may have wider implications. Okay. So that's kind of, you know, how I reflect on that is, you know, I'm I only can affect my own little area of the world, mm-hmm. but you try to do the right thing every day and mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. maybe, you know, it helps in the general scheme. Well, you've already mentioned earlier in this interview that you try to do the right thing for the employees of Garnett and you feel personally responsible for that payroll. You know, so that that's the risk that you'll take. Right. And um, But I was lucky enough to have two partners right. who really take that as personally as I do. Okay. And okay. so, you know, the fact that we are all in lockstep on that right. and, you know, everybody gets paid before we take any profits out. Right. You know, I yeah. I think that helps for the morale of, of the whole. We're like a family. Right. You, right. You know, it's it's now, you know, people come in and they don't go out. Right. Right. And I guess you probably have the same attitude for um, your clients. You, you you feel responsible for the, I won't say the end result necessarily of what they're buying, but I'm sure the process of the brokerage. Is that right? We feel responsible for everything. Okay. So if I had to say, you know, you know what our best feature is uh-huh. and what our worst feature is, okay. it's responsibility. Okay. You know, sometimes it's like, okay, just get it done. But, you know, our best client is a partner. Okay. It's somebody who we've dealt with for a long time, and there's a level of trust there that we're just going to... We we take their assets and we say, if this was ours, mm-hmm. what would we do? Okay. But you're frequently, if not always, right, representing the originator? But 90% of the time. The originator? Yeah. Almost 100%. Okay. So you're always trying to get the highest price. Right. But so, if you didn't get fair prices for the buyers... They would not come. Well, that was my next question, because what happens if you've got a buyer that's willing to pay more than the thing is worth, but you're representing the seller, the originator, and you're trying to maximize their profits, but you know the buyer's going to lose money if he pays, so, if he overpays. And that's a great question. And the first big deal that we did in charge-offs, I mean, we had been doing charge-offs for years and years. We finally uh, liquidated somebody's sort of charge-off business for a bank, a Midwest bank. And, you know, we thought it was worth, 
20 million bucks. Mm-hmm. And the high bid was $30 million. Mm-hmm. And this was a firm who, who it was a big number for them. And I'm like, that's too much money. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. And I was so like, you... these guys are going to hunt me down. Okay. And, but they. Is that the risk of order speaking? In yeah, the, because yeah. I thought that was, but then, I mean, I wanted to say something. I'm like, right. you are, you right. know, 50% higher than where we valued it and we're right. optimistic. Right, right. That guy killed it on that portfolio. So he, it's, it was running uh, a little under $2 million a month in gross cash. Mm-hmm. Two years later, it mm-hmm. was over $2 million a month and had been every other month for 24 months. So he killed it in spite of paying. Well, you know why? Because he knew the business better than I did. Wow. I knew okay. the portfolio and the numbers, and I knew what the seller had done to it, but he knew the intrinsic value of the assets and could see that you know, they had two support people for every collector. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, he, two months later, it was eight collectors with one support person. Mm -hmm. So, you know, they were upside down on their, the way they ran the business. Mm -hmm. So he had the presence of mind Mm -hmm. to pay a number and, you know, and actually get a great deal for himself. Mm -hmm. So I, we do have price talk. Yep. And generally speaking, we end up within our price talk. That was one okay. time okay. that I was worried. Right. And it worked out for the buyer tremendously. Yep. So. Well, terrific. And they were, that was 15 years ago. They remind me about it today. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So lastly, what's the outlook for Garnett in 2017? What do you, what do you see for you guys? You know, we try to plan every year, you know, what's the commercial business going to do? What's the residential? What's the, right. you know, how do we want the cookie to look? Mm-hmm. And then we just say, oh, you know, just we're just going to work hard mm-hmm. and do the deals, you know, and, and just try to, you know, end up where we end up every year. Mm-hmm. I will say that the first two weeks of January were the busiest first two weeks of any year Mm -hmm. since, you know, really since we started Garnet. Wow. I I think there's a, you know, there's a pent-up demand Mm -hmm. to adjust balance sheets. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So we're pretty busy right now in Mm -hmm. all aspects, mortgage, Mm -hmm. you know, performing consumer, non-performing consumer. Right. So... I think people need to adjust their balance sheet, just like when you would, what is a financial service company? The Mm -hmm. the loans Mm -hmm. is inventory. Right. So if you're a car company and you have too many engines, you got to get rid of the engines if you don't, if you don't have enough bodies. Right. Right. So, so it's just inventory. Mm -hmm. So that's, I'm in the inventory management business. Okay. So I assume this is a good omen then for the industry. This is an, would you call it a key indicator? You know, the volumes that you've seen already? I, I do think it, it is, you know, a couple of the big risks. I don't think there's a big regulatory risk on this year's horizon. There's an interest rate risk. You know, you know, the seesaw as right. rates go up, prices go right down. There we go. That's right. why you're on that side of the microphone. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Lou. And, uh, if asset prices decline dramatically, then sellers will be less likely to sell but right, right now we're still in right, a but then you'll have more buyers and then you know that's the free market that's the free market 
Well, Lou, I, this has been a fascinating you know, half hour with you. I, I really appreciate your time today. I'd like to thank you for uh, telling us a little bit about how you love puzzles and how each portfolio that you broker is like a puzzle. We learned also that uh, uh, you see opportunity in crisis, you know, opportunity in the danger that underlies the crisis. Uh, but what's interesting is that Lou De Palma, he will avoid the risk help other people maybe take that risk, and that's part of the value add of Garnett. Capital, right. But at the same time, they do it with responsibility, responsibility to both the originator as well as the buyer. Transparency is the word I would use. Right. It's yeah. a wonderful story, Lou. Do you have any final words for our listeners today? I would say mothers, don't let your babies grow up to be loan sale advisors. <laughs> Let's just end on that because it's, it's, you know, not the greatest way to, you know, make a living. My mom still doesn't know what I do. Yeah, but some of them turn out rich, right? The buyers. So many of my sellers and buyers are have wealthy and, you know, well-established companies. Okay. You won't get rich being a loan seller. But you sleep well at night. You know, we don't have to worry about other people's money. Yep. So we've carved ourselves a nice little reputational, you know, part of the business. No, you've got an outstanding reputation at Garnett Capital Advisors. And Lou De Palma, thank you very much. We appreciate your time this afternoon and, and have fun tomorrow at the DBA conference. Thank you. I'm okay. thrilled to be here. Thank you. All right. Bye. Bye. We want to thank you for listening to this special episode of the Capital Club Radio Show with your host, Michael Flock, and his guests live from the 2017 DBA International Conference at the Aria Resort Hotel and Casino in Las Vegas. Made possible in part by Flock Specialty Finance, more than a transaction. For more info, visit flockfinance.com. To listen to a rebroadcast and more episodes, visit capitalclubradio.com.